Last time on countries that don't exist anymore. Carthage in jeopardy. Mercenaries on the rampage. Who can save them now? What's that you say? Small forces? Lightning raids? There's only one man to call. Flash Hamilcar. Flash Hamilcar. Savior of the universe. Yes, Flash went to work. During one battle, he feigned a retreat. The rebels followed him into a trap as their forces were surrounded by cavalry and slaughtered. Flash! On one occasion, Flash was totally surrounded but used his smooth talking to get the Numidian cavalry to switch sides. Still worshipping God? <laughs> Last thing I heard, he started worshipping me! <laughs> in fact, Hamilcar offered anyone who switched sides a place in his army. The response by the rebels was to execute their Carthaginian captives in a particularly nasty way. Their hands were cut off, they were castrated and their legs were broken. They were then thrown into a pit and buried alive. Why so brutal, you ask? The rebel leaders anticipated that the Carthaginians would retaliate by doing much the same to their captives, which they did. This sending out a message that your enemy would offer you no mercy, so there was no point trying to surrender and switch sides. But despite Flash Hamilcar's antics, things were not going well for Carthage. They had three problems. One, an essential shipment of supplies had been lost in a storm. Two, Sardinia was in full revolt. Three, Carthage's allies, Utica and Hippocrate, had defected to the rebels. God, what a bunch of Uticking Hippocrates. Meanwhile, Hanno and Hamilcar couldn't even agree on a winning strategy. Who was going to help Carthage now? Syracuse. What? And Rome. Double what? Syracuse agreed to send Carthage essential supplies. Now Carthage was out of the Sicilian picture and Rome was the new boss, Syracuse started to miss old Carthage, who really hadn't been all that bad after all. Sounds like that 120 year long war was really just their way of saying, hey, I care. <laughs> I've just got a funny way of showing it. A long, violent, funny way of showing it. But why did Rome want to help? If you're aware of how Carthage's story ends, spoilers, you might be under the impression that Rome was all about the destruction of Carthage, but not so. In fact, Rome had plenty of opportunities to inflict further damage on Carthage without taking them. For example, the city of Utica offered itself to Rome, which would have put the Roman territory right next to Carthage, but Rome refused. Rome banned any trade with the rebel forces, but encouraged trade with Carthage to keep it supplied and stocked. They even allowed Carthage to recruit fresh soldiers from southern Italy, as well as releasing thousands of prisoners of war from Sicily to go home and fight. But I thought that Rome were basically bastards. Here they come across as not bastards. Yeah, but that's because you've been brainwashed by a liberal Western civilization-hating education system. Really? No. The reason that Rome helped Carthage was it was good for Rome. We think of Rome as this relentless war machine, but even relentless war machines need to take a break. Yes, it won the race for Sicily, but Sicily was in a mess. Rome knew it would need time to recover and rebuild, and what was paying for that recovery was trade with Carthage. The Carthaginians were the economic Greece of the Western Mediterranean. Besides, Rome was building an empire. 
it couldn't just go around arming and encouraging rebellions against legitimate powers. It was 3rd century BC Rome, not 18th century France. So thanks to the interference of Rome, things were improving for Carthage, while the rebels were being starved of supplies. And by this time, Hamilcar Flash Barker had been given sole command of Carthaginian forces thanks to a popular vote, despite some of his legitimately shoddy treatment of enemy soldiers. From now on, all captured rebels should be trampled to death by elephants. But surely on the eve of victory, now's the time to offer amnesty and divide the rebel cause. Yeah, well I'm the people's choice, and the people's choice says squishing people with elephants looks awesome. Alright. Hamilcar Barker then followed this up with a coup de grace. He trapped a large part, probably 40,000, of the rebel army in a valley called the Saw. Conditions were so bad that the rebels were resorting to cannibalism. That which you have just eaten, that which your teeth have just torn apart, your taste buds have savoured. That was human meat. Hamilcar said he'd received ten invoys, so the leaders of the rebellion came out to meet him. He then said if they gave him ten hostages of his choice, all the rest of the rebels could go free. The leaders hurriedly agreed to these terms, and this is when Hamilcar played his trump card. There's nobody bigger or better at the military than I am. He chose the ten envoys who were the leaders of the rebellion, thus decapitating the rebellion. Genius, Flash. At a stroke, you've ended the rebellion with the least possible killing. Yes. And then he had the 40,000 rebel soldiers cut to pieces. That wily old genocidal maniac. Yep, genius. So anyway, Hamilcar Barker had the final rebel stronghold of Tunis surrounded. He brought out the rebel leadership and crucified them in front of the walls. Okay, completely brutal unpleasantness all round, but he's done it, so rebellion over, right? Uh, no. One of the other key generals... Let me guess, someone called Hannibal? Yes. This not-so-famous Hannibal got so complacent that he failed to notice a rebel force attack him from the rear... He was then taken prisoner and, along with other important Carthaginians, he was crucified in retaliation. <laughs> he only had one job to not let that specific sequence of events unfold. Yeah, but anyway, there was a final battle. The rebels were crushed and there were lashings and crucifixions all round. Rebellion over. Phew. Except for the rebellion in Sardinia, which uh. resulted in... Yeah, well, there's always another rebellion, isn't there? Except for the one in Sardinia, which resulted in all the Carthaginians on the island being massacred. The rebels went to the Romans for help, but the Romans refused. But then the Romans went and annexed Sardinia anyway, despite a 240 BC treaty with Carthage specifically saying they wouldn't. But why did Rome annex Sardinia after specifically stating they wouldn't? Well, the decision to annex came from the Roman Popular Assembly, which was particularly hawkish. The sun says we must invade Iraq to protect ourselves from Saddam's nuclear goldfish. Exactly. And Rome also felt they had to act. It was one thing to help Carthage when they were down, but now the old foe looked like they were getting their strength back. Hamilcar Barker was preparing an invasion force and Rome didn't want to deal with a newly powerful Carthage in their backyard. As to the treaty, well, what treaty? As usual, the Carthaginian elite wanted a general to crucify, but Flash Hamilcar was too damn popular. 
In fact, he was so popular, he was set up with the kind of powers that generals would usually get in military colonies. Hamilcar's family, the Barsids, rose to prominence in this new post-colonial Carthage, thanks to support from the popular assembly, the military and certain factions of the wealthy elite. We say post-colonial, but all that looked to change. Carthage was broke and had huge indemnities to pay off. Its coinage in this period was bronze. It needed silver, gold and troops. If it was going to protect what it had and stand up to Rome, it would have to find both those things in an area very familiar to the Phoenician world, southern Spain. So Hamilcar set off with his army in 237 BC. Hamilcar had another reason to go to Spain. If he went there and got mining, he could pay off the indemnity, pay his troops and avoid censure from the Council of Elders, who he had loaded with his own supporters just to be on the safe side. So Hamilcar went about fighting some Celtic tribes and allying with others until he had control of Spanish silver mines, then brought in thousands of slaves to do the actual work. Classic move. At this time, Spain was like the new world for those further east in the Mediterranean, so the natives would have to be dealt with if mineral wealth of the land could be plundered efficiently. Spoilers, the same thing happens in South America at the hands of the Spanish a millennium and a half later. Hamilcar was getting so rich and powerful that when a mutiny broke out in North Africa, he just sent his son-in-law Hasdrubal to put it down. That's Flash. And when Hamilcar died in the 220s in battle, presumably backflipping over his enemy before decapitating them and then being decapitated himself, Hasdrubal was appointed by the army as its successor, even though this was supposed to be the job of the Council of Elders. Things had changed. Hasdrubal married a local king's daughter, took the title Strategos Autocrator, and even built a new city in the southeast Spain called New Carthage. And just to top things off, he had himself a magnificent palace built there. Meanwhile, the Romans were getting concerned with the Carthaginian northern and eastern expansion in Spain, so they sent some emissaries who pretty much said, Um, you're not going to be crossing any rivers near us, are you? And Hasdrubal replied, We'll see. And in unrelated news, he was murdered in his palace by a disgruntled slave in 221 BC. But if I were a slave, I'd probably be almost permanently disgruntled. I mean, you would be, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. When he died, the army acclaimed his son Hannibal. <gasps> the Hannibal? The Hannibal. Hooray! The popular assembly in Carthage agreed, and the Council of Elders just left really passive-aggressive post-it notes around the kitchen because no one had asked them. Once in power, Hannibal Barker then went campaigning in northwest Spain, pulling off some stunning victories, and this was a sign of things to come. Hannibal advanced until he reached the city of Saguntum, a Roman ally. The city sent a panicky message of help back to Rome as Hannibal tightened his grip. Roman ambassadors came to protest to Hannibal and New Carthage, to which Hannibal wasn't exactly diplomatic. Hannibal was feeling confident. He ran half of Spain, which was crammed with silver mines, and he had a personal fighting force of roughly 70,000 battle-hardened troops, including war elephants to boot. And because of his family's involvement in the Punic War against Rome, he felt a personal grudge towards Rome. Long story short, he took Saguntum. Back in Carthage, Hanno angrily declared, It is against Carthage that Hannibal is now bringing up his towers. It is Carthage whose walls he is shaking with his battering ram. The ruins of Saguntum will fall on our heads, and the war which has begun with Saguntum will have to be carried on with Rome. The reaction to his 
eloquent and dramatically acted speech was silence. Well, I thought it was great. (laughs) (laughs) The reaction to his speech was silence, as even his opponents didn't think they had the power to remove Hannibal. Roman historian Cassius Dio pointed out that Carthage had never appointed Hannibal, so they couldn't easily remove him, but that meant they weren't all that enthusiastic about his exploits. He said, They wished rather not to appear to be leaving him in the lurch than to cooperate effectively in any enterprise. The Romans finally went to Carthage, and after the Carthaginians cleverly dodged many Roman charges, the Roman ambassador asked Carthage to choose peace or war. In classic evasive style, the Carthaginians said, which do you choose? The Romans said war. The Carthaginians said, right, so why bother asking? And so starts off the Second Punic War. That's it. Yes, it's war. The Romans, as usual, didn't want to paint themselves as the aggressors, though typically they were pretty sure they were going to win anyway. The Roman plan was simple. Half their force would take on Hannibal in Spain and the other half would invade Africa. What they didn't expect was for Hannibal to march across hostile Gaul, climb the Alps as winter set in, and then somehow emerge on the other side complete with troops, cavalry, and war elephants. But that's what Hannibal did. I don't know how you get a war elephant through a narrow alpine pass, but I bet it involves gallons of olive oil. And though it was classic Flash Hamilcar move, it was also costly. Hannibal entered the Alps with 50,000 troops and emerged on the other side with half that number. But he achieved total surprise and was soon reinforced with Gaulish troops very eager to stick it to Rome. Was Hannibal's crazy plan to take his troops through the Alps some stroke of insane out-of-the-box military genius? Well, partly. But the other reason he had to do this was because Rome now controlled the waves and Hannibal had no choice but to go overland. The difference between Hannibal's army and what Carthage had put into the field for years was that the core of Hannibal's army were loyal, battle-hardened veterans. Hannibal was also gathering support from Greeks, Gauls and the Phoenician diaspora, who were afraid of Roman domination. He consciously took on the role of Melkart and Heracles in a quasi-divine form. Big-headed much? Well, at the time, conquering generals often presented themselves as divine, but Rome had claimed to be the successors of Heracles, which justified their conquests. Hannibal was now taking that title and Rome was being recast as a tyrant. PR is important. Now on Rome's home turf, Rome and Carthage clashed, but Carthage came out on top in two battles thanks to their superior Numidian cavalry. And in a further bid to separate Rome from Italy, Roman prisoners of war were treated harshly, but Italian prisoners of war were released and allowed to go home, possibly with a party bag of Carthaginian merch. Hannibal's overriding strategy was to peel off Romans' allies and leave them isolated. Over the winter of 218 to 217 BC, Rome was able to mobilise another 100,000 fighting men to face the Carthaginians. Not that it made a difference. The Roman forces were crushed at Lake Trasimene in the summer of 217 BC. The problem with the Romans is that they had become used to winning open battle and were masters of one-on-one infantry fights, but things were changing. Rather than now sending a force to meet the Carthaginians in open battle, a new Roman force shadowed the Carthaginians and prepared to wait them out. And this was a clever tactic that even Hannibal grudgingly respected. In fact, at one point, the Carthaginians were surrounded in a valley. 
They were only able to get out when, by night, torches were attached to 2,000 cattle to misdirect Roman forces, allowing Carthaginians to slip out of Roman lines. But Rome demanded a victory, so 80,000 troops were sent against the Carthaginian army at Cannae. The Roman army was led by two consuls. One wanted to play safe and starve out the Carthaginians, the other wanted an open battle with the Carthaginians, which is exactly what Hannibal wanted. Not being able to agree between them on who should be in charge of the war effort, the Roman consuls took it in turns each day to lead the army. I got a bad feeling about this. So Hannibal lined up his troops for battle one morning and waited to see what the Romans would do. When the Romans failed to meet the Carthaginians, Hannibal concluded that the more cautious consul was in charge that day. So he had his men return to camp, got an early light, and then line up for battle the next morning. And of course, on that day, the more aggressive consul was in charge, so Hannibal got his battle. The Battle of Cannae. Having seen Hannibal's previous battle formations, the Romans assumed that Hannibal would put his strongest troops in the centre. So they put their heavy infantry in a tight formation packed into the centre. But Hannibal changed things up. Instead, he put his weakest troops in the centre, which included his Gaulish allies, and instead put his strongest heavy African troops on the flanks in a crescent formation facing the Romans. When the two sides met, the weak Carthaginian centre quickly broke and retreated. Sensing victory, the Romans, like idiots, rushed after them without noticing that the strong African troops on the flank had maintained their position. It's a trap! Suddenly, the Roman centre found themselves surrounded on three sides. They were then hit in the rear by the Carthaginian cavalry. The Romans were cut to pieces. They were so tightly packed in that it was said that the Roman soldiers couldn't even raise their sword arms. 70,000 Roman soldiers were killed, 10,000 were captured. This included the cream of Roman society, including 80 men of senatorial rank and 29 senior commanders. Yeah, I don't like how the very rich and super lucky are, are always called the cream. I think we should abolish cream and everyone can have the same kind of dairy product, presumably some kind of poor quality UHT you have to queue up for. In tiny sachets. Rome looked to be finished. It seemed like all Hannibal needed to do was march on Rome itself and the war would be over. Mahabal, the leader of the Numidian cavalry, demanded that the next target should be Rome. Hannibal refused, which led to Mahabal supposedly saying, You know how to win victory, Hannibal, but you do not know how to use it. In hindsight, it's easy to get frustrated with Hannibal for not marching on Rome and finishing the war. But there were very good reasons why Hannibal didn't do this. Number one. Rome was heavily fortified with 400 kilometres of walls. And number two. Hannibal's army were exhausted. They may have been enough of them to beat Rome repeatedly in battle, but maintaining a large and long siege was a very different matter. A lot of historians have said that Hannibal had no intention of destroying Rome. Apparently, he wanted Rome to remain a central Italian power and for Carthage to merely take back Sicily and Sardinia. So his tactic was merely to remove Rome's Italian allies until Rome realised they were totally isolated and weak and so come to peace. But Hannibal's biggest flaw was probably his misunderstanding of Rome. He didn't understand that Rome was not about to surrender and compromise. It was about being a stubborn bastard that would never, ever, ever throw in the towel. The Romans weren't quite like other people. 
But Hannibal wasn't to know that, and he had every reason to feel confident. Things seemed to be going well. Syracuse went into revolt against Rome, and Macedon requested an alliance with Carthage. Straight after the victory at Cannae, Capua, a Roman ally, switched sides to Carthage and gave Hannibal a triumph when he entered the city. Hannibal told them they would be the new capital of all Italy. This was probably a mistake. The problem is that this pissed off nearby cities who didn't want to cast off domination from Rome only to be dominated by Capua. And while Hannibal was having all the success in Italy, this doesn't mean that the war was peachy everywhere else. Meanwhile, in Spain, the Carthaginian army were being defeated in battle by the Romans. Ugh. And in Sicily, Rome defeated a Carthaginian army to somehow gain control back of the island. But where was Rome getting its armies? By dropping almost all qualifications over who could serve. Bye-bye citizen soldiers of a certain age, hello slaves, criminals and toddlers and whatever. Hannibal was having a frustrating time. Every time he flipped an Italian ally to his side or got control of an Italian city, Roman troops would nip in after to undo his good work. So seven years into the Italian campaign, Hannibal finally marched on Rome. Upon receiving this news, the Roman citizens panicked. It was said that people were so upset that women started to sweep the floors of the temple with their hair, and then other women had to come in and brush up stray hairs with their own hair. But they needn't have worried. Hannibal didn't intend to take Rome, only to demonstrate to the Italian allies that Rome wasn't coming to help them. But this didn't work. Shortly after, Rome took Capua. And another blow to Carthage came with the young Roman general Scipio, who had taken notes out of Hannibal's playbook and had grown up fighting battles against him, so knew how he worked. And while Hannibal was going round saying he was the new Heracles, Scipio claimed to be descended from Jupiter, of course. According to the historian Polybius, when Scipio was a baby, a snake crawled on him without harming him, and dogs never barked at him. Um, I mean, as far as superhero pals go it's pretty low tier stuff yeah but i mean you've ever had a dog not bark at you no exactly dogs bark at me exactly that's what made scipio great so scipio took his army to new carthage in spain and using diversionary attack on one side of the city had men wade through a shallow lagoon during low tide with ladders to climb up and take the city walls from the other direction and of course he claimed that the roman god neptune had appeared to him in a dream and told him how to take the city of course he did this one, Scipio, the loyal following of his men, who thought he was the real deal. Scipio also spared New Carthage, winning lots of new recruits and gaining lots of money. Not least from some local Spanish tribes who were fed up of Carthage's presence. In fact, some Spanish tribes even proclaimed Scipio a king before he politely pointed out that Romans didn't take too kindly to kings, and while they were allowed to think it, they just couldn't say it. Scipio then defeated a major army under Carthaginian general Mago, using basically the same tactics Hannibal had used at Cannae. Apparently BC means before copyright. So by 206 before copyright, the Carthaginians, aka the Barsids, were finished in Spain. Retreating from Spain, Hasdrubal tried to link up with Hannibal back in Italy, but was cut off by a Roman force before having his head cut off and thrown into Hannibal's camp, which some negative Nellies might see as an obstacle to Hasdrubal's further military career. Death isn't the handicap it used to be in the olden days. It doesn't screw your career up like it used to. Hannibal increasingly found himself hemmed in and unable to act. 
This was fortunate for Rome. Some historians have suggested that if Hannibal and Hasdrubal had managed to link up, Hannibal would finally have had a large enough army to take out the Roman capital. Staying on the front foot, Scipio invaded North Africa in 204 BC and managed to do so much damage that the Carthaginian council summoned Hannibal back to defend the homeland. Hannibal did not take this well. In fact, he blamed the council for not supplying him with enough men and troops to get the job done in Italy and felt they had starved out his father in the First Punic War. The Carthaginians had resorted to tricky tactics by now. They had signed a peace treaty with Scipio, but only had done this to buy some time so that Hannibal could return. This annoyed Scipio so much that he went on the rampage throughout the countryside to draw Hannibal into battle. And in 202, the two sides lined up for the Battle of Zama. So it's down to this. Two of the greatest generals of all time. Hannibal outnumbered Scipio two to one, but he still asked for a new peace treaty and Scipio refused. Why would Hannibal be nervous? Well, Scipio was the young, long-haired rock star who was on a roll, whereas Hannibal had been fighting for a long, gruelling war with increasingly little to show for his efforts. But perhaps key, Rome had made an alliance with the Numidians and secured the services of their battle-winning cavalry. And worse still, Rome had learned how to deal with the Carthaginian war elephants. So once the battle was underway and the elephants charged, the Romans just changed formation, creating wide channels for the elephants to run straight down. General, I think I've discovered a way to neutralise Carthage's war elephants. We stay out of the way, sir. Genius! The actual battle was a closely matched infantry fight which was only won by the Romans once their cavalry returned from beating off the Carthaginian cavalry. Carthage sued for peace, which Scipio accepted with these following terms. Number one. Carthage couldn't fight wars outside of Africa and it would need permission from Rome to fight within Africa. Number two. Carthage had to pay a huge war indemnity over the next 50 years. Three. All war elephants were to be handed over to Rome. Yes. And four. Carthage could only keep 10 warships. Scipio also got the cool name Africanus, having conquered Africa. Well... I mean, some of it. Just a little bit. A tiny bit at the top. Tiny, tiny, tiny bit bit of Africa. Worried about what happened to the army last time, Hannibal put his soldiers to work planting olive groves. And having ultimately failed on the battlefield, Hannibal turned his hand to politics. And despite the loss at Zama, Hannibal remained very popular. Going into politics on a populist ticket, Hannibal rallied against the corruption and campaigned for Tribune of 104 to be regularly elected, thus circumvented the Carthaginian council. Like a Roman populist, Hannibal used the popular assembly to pass building programmes to get people employed and to improve Carthage. The reaction of the Council of Elders was predictably hostile. So much so that they reported to Rome that Hannibal was conspiring with King Antiochus of the Seleucid Empire to invade Italy and North Africa. True or not, and who knows, this turned into quite the self-fulfilling prophecy when Rome sent agents to Carthage only for Hannibal to flee to King Antiochus of the Seleucid Empire to discuss the invasion of Italy and North Africa. As it happens, Antiochus did go to war with Rome, but wasn't all that interested in taking war advice from Hannibal the bottler Barker, only giving him commission of chief chair straightener. Poor Hannibal. 
He spent the rest of his life sleeping on the couches of various kings in the east. He went to a king of Bithynia and, among other things, advised him that he could win naval battles if his sailors threw pots of snakes at enemy ships, and the king of Bithynia said... Really excellent, Hannibal. Really just top suggestions. I tell you what, why don't you hand over your CV, we'll pop it on file, and we'll give you a call if anything comes up, okay? Hannibal was finally tracked down by some Roman agents but took some poison, killing himself in 183 BC before he could be caught. Scipio Africanus, having conquered all of Africa, and his supporters actually objected to the hunting of Hannibal and thought he should have been allowed to live out his days. But most were glad to see the back of the threat that was Hannibal Barker, Rome's worst nightmare. Similarly in Rome, Scipio Africanus fell foul of the Roman elite and was prosecuted for corruption in his wars against Antiochus and died a broken man not long after Hannibal. Two military heroes were considered too great a threat for their respective countries. So you see, Phil, in war, there are no real winners. Yeah, except for the side that doesn't lose. Ah, how very true. So was this the end of Carthage? No! In fact, without having to fund wars or colonies anymore, Carthage experienced an economic recovery, and ten years after the end of the war, Carthage had already paid off its 50-year debt to Rome. North Africa had survived largely unscathed, agricultural output had gone up, and New Carthage could freely trade with Rome. Carthage was able to build an amazing new circular port harbour complex built from sandstone. Meanwhile, Rome had been fighting several wars and was exhausted. And while the Romans needed Carthaginian imports, the Roman Senate was hostile still and suspicious of Carthage, despite not seeing them as a military threat. In 162 BC, King Messinia, Roman's Numidian ally in North Africa, went on the offensive overrunning Carthaginian lands. Carthage appealed to Rome, but they were told that they not only had to accept Messinia's control, but also to pay him reparations too. The Numidians made the case that since the Carthaginians had only been granted as much land as they could cover with an oxen's hide, they had no real claim to any of it. And when Messinia tried the same trick again, Rome accepted it. And while Carthage had its defenders in Rome, it also had powerful opponents. When the Roman statesman Marcus Porcius Cato arrived in Carthage, he was furious to find the city rich, teeming with fighting men and ready to build a new fleet, or so he claimed. Returning to Rome, he lobbied hard for a new invasion, ending every speech with an ominous new catchphrase, Carthage must be destroyed. Nice to see Carthage destroyed! To see Carthage destroyed! Unfortunately, catchphrases catch on, which is why they're called catchphrases, because they're catchy, and they catch on. And this was a time when Rome was at its most hostile and expansionist. In its early days, Rome had gone to great lengths to paint itself as only fighting justified wars, but increasingly with no serious opponents to stop it, Rome had become the steamroller of the Mediterranean world. At one point, Cato climbed onto the speaker's rostrum and opened his toga to reveal a big, juicy, fat fig. How disgusting! Explaining that it had been picked in Carthage three days earlier, Cato demonstrated that Carthage was a renewed threat in close proximity to Rome. Thousands because of one fig. Mm. 
Well, thousands of years later in Britain, Antonius Porky Pius Blair pulled the similar stunt by opening his robe to reveal one of Saddam Hussein's imaginary nuclear warheads. How disgusting. Meanwhile in Carthage, a new faction grew that had popular support. It claimed that the Romans weren't protecting them and Carthage should cast out the Numidians themselves. Unfortunately for Carthage, this wasn't to end well. Not only were they defeated in battle by the Numidians and lost another chunk of land, they also had violated the peace treaty. Rome now had a clear reason to invade. In truth, Carthage wasn't a military threat, but it had become a great economic prize. Who doesn't love big juicy ripe figs? How disgusting! When Carthaginians came to Rome to plead their case in 150 BC, they found that the Roman army had already set sail. Cato prepared a dossier of six supposed incidents where Carthage had broken treaties, contrasting it to how morally upstanding and wonderful Rome was. But Rome still offered Carthage some kind of peace deal, as well as basically completely disarming Carthage, which it did. Its terms were basically unacceptable. As long as Carthaginians moved 16 kilometres inland and the city of Carthage was completely destroyed, the Romans would not go to war with the Carthaginians. What a great deal. Yeah. And when the Carthaginians protested, Rome pretty much said, Look, it's for your own good. If you can't see the sea, you won't want an empire. Right, guys? And while Ed paraphrases, that was pretty much the message. Carthage, who by now had given up much of their weaponry, went about rearming themselves and preparing for war. The 700,000 strong citizenry of Carthage created workshops to fashion hundreds of weapons per day to arm their men, ships were being built from whatever was available, and women even donated their hair for catapult string. And Carthage was still an incredible city, with huge walls, 20,000 infantry, 300 elephants and 4,000 cavalry. Carthage was far from beaten. And this siege didn't go well for Rome. Meanwhile, Hasdrubal, the one who hadn't had his head cut off, was on the rampage in North Africa with his army disrupting Roman efforts. And Romans weren't happy with the war effort and sent General Scipio Aemilianus to North Africa as the adoptive grandson of Scipio Africanus, who of course conquered all of Africa. The family name alone made Hasdrubal nervous enough that he gathered his forces and took them inside the city of Carthage. This allowed Scipio to now totally blockade Carthage. Inside the city, Hasdrubal became a brutal dictator. He used food shortage to ensure compliance, rewarding his supporters with lavish banquets whilst letting his enemies starve. He also tortured Roman captives to death on the walls of Carthage so the population knew that the Romans would offer them no mercy. It's weird how the fear of autocrats ruling Carthage had made the Carthaginian council so punishing of its generals, and yet the only time someone became an autocrat was right at the very end. Not that it really matters. In 146, Scipio ordered the final assault on the city. As fires broke out in the city, it was said that Scipio wept. He said, The day shall come in which our sacred Trojan Priam and the people over whom spear-bearing Priam rules shall perish all. And his companion said, Do you mean Rome? And he said, Yes, I thought that would have been bloody obvious. But Scipio can't have been that bothered since the Romans took Carthage street by street, looting, pillaging and burling until the Carthaginians were killed or enslaved, their art and wealth shipped back to Rome and their names rubbed out. As his last gesture, Scipio performed the ceremony of Evocatio, 
the exhorting of the gods of Carthage to abandon the city and make their new home in Rome. Why? This way, the deeply religious Romans could not be accused of sacrilege since they could claim that Carthage was a city empty of gods before it was finally destroyed. What a brilliant technicality. And even then, its temples were left standing. It's a really good idea to hedge your bets. What was Carthage's legacy? Carthage was a nightmare that lived with Rome for a long time. Not only were the tales of Hannibal popular for Roman mothers to scare their children with, but the destruction of Carthage was a long and traumatic subject for the Roman psyche. Romans were obsessed with their own morality and their own sense of what Rome should be. It was felt that without the existence of an opponent in Carthage, Rome would slip into decadence and despotism. And boy, that didn't happen. <laughs> It is even said that the land of Carthage had been salted so that a new settlement could not flourish, but even a hundred years later, it was still being hotly debated about building a new Roman settlement, with some arguing that a new Carthage might emerge that could go on to destroy Rome. Methinks the lady doth protest too much. But attitudes change, and salt can be removed. Yeah, if you actually have spilt salt on the floor, the tip is just to dab it with a bit of red wine. Lifts it right out. When Julius Caesar was campaigning in North Africa, he had a dream of weeping soldiers, which was interpreted both as weeping Carthaginians or weeping Roman soldiers who needed land. Either way, he decided that a new city of Carthage should be rebuilt, but Caesar was murdered before the project could get underway. So instead... It was left to Augustus, who showed Roman clemency and peacefulness by bulldozing what was left of Carthage and then planning a new city on top of it. Roman clemency, everyone. Yeah, actually, an uh, interesting thing about Augustus that I recently found out is, you know that whole story about Dido going to Africa yeah. and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. Well, that was obviously, that was written as a piece of propaganda from Augustus. Uh, it was by uh, uh, Virgil in the Aeneid. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and the interesting thing about it was, the, you know, the uh, founder of Rome was supposed to be Aeneas from the Trojan Wars and all that, and yep. that was to claim the continuing power of Rome that went right back into history. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Aeneas, the founder of Rome, was married to Dido, the founder of Carthage, but he dumped her, and in that sort of quote, horrible woman way, end quote. she said, yeah, well, I'm going to get my own back on you, and I'm going to destroy Rome. So actually, what happened was Rome had to destroy Carthage in self-defence. To make it right. Yeah, exactly. Bloody women. Yeah, so actually, it wasn't Rome's fault actually yeah, at all because they fault. didn't do nothing, didn't right? Do nothing and wrong. it was Carthage what did it in the first place. Well, and me they, miss. It wasn't me, miss. It was Carthage. Yeah, that's true. That's how it went. Yeah. Well, while Carthage might have been rubbed from the map, Carthage's culture lived on. North African elites, now loyal to Rome, still celebrated their Punic heritage. Punic survived as the written and spoken language in that area of North Africa until the 4th century AD. Chief magistrates continued to be called Sufets until the 2nd century AD. And the gods of Carthage continued to be worshipped. Top citizens of Carthage made their way through the cities of the Mediterranean and became powerful and influential in other countries in the Roman Empire. In fact, Rome even had an emperor of Carthaginian stock. Septimus Severus marched 1,000 kilometres from the Danube to Rome via the Alps to become an emperor of Rome in imitation of Hannibal. Just a coincidence? He even reburied the remains of Hannibal in a white mausoleum to underline the connection. So no. Definitely not. And Emperor Constantine the Great 
even had a nephew called Flanius Hannibalianus, after the great Hannibal. And Flanius's fave pyjamas? <gasps> Elephant ones? Really? Possibly. Oh. And Carthage's legacy is still evident. There are major cities that still exist today that were founded by Carthage, including Lisbon, Cartagena, Masala, Malaga and Tangier. In more modern times, there were 10 cities named after Carthage, nine of which are in the United States. Yes, and in the US, there are five cities named after Hannibal. From the A-team? No, the other one. Which one? Tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, tick a car, tick a car, Carthage, tick a car, 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 tick pod it really helps us to continue doing this and bring you more countries that no longer exist next time we're going to be joined by the amazing history presenter star of netflix radio 4 and much more the wonderful izzy lawrence so join us then on countries that don't exist anymore they used to exist but not anymore now you know what this podcast is for it's countries that don't exist anymore